there's a lot there's a huge conversation we have about right size models um around resource usage you know and like making sure you like for example i'll give you like a right now uh in copilot um you have like you can be typing and it can give you code completions as you're typing or you can ask a question in the chat interface and it gives you a response when you're typing the LLM behind that model is actually today, and it changes over time because you know we keep incrementing models, we keep improving things. Right now, it's Chat GPT. It's sorry, it's uh, GPT three five Turbo is the model that it's talking to. Um, if you're using the chat interface and then some other areas, that's using GPT four, and so GPT four significantly greater context, um, oftentimes better results based on the context you're giving it. Um, but the the amount of energy consumption per transaction, the amount of resource consumption per transaction is a lot greater. If you're typing, you don't you maybe don't need all that, and the amount of completion it's giving you is typically one line, one to three lines kind of thing. It's not a huge amount that it's doing. So we can use a smaller model that's faster, more energy efficient, and gives you the responses back quicker. My name is Skolk Nietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast, a podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Martin. Uh, welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to finally get to chat to you. Yeah, it took a while. Um, it, normally, that's what happens if you try to do anything in December, right? Yeah, indeed. But no, it's a, a beautiful day over here in Northern Ireland now, so it's good to finally speak. Nice. And then last week, we would have done this, but then snow decided, no, no, you're going to wait another week. Yeah, we had snow and wind. It's, you know, it's extreme weather sort of thing. So it kind of, a lot of people here had power issues and things. So, uh, but yeah, I'm glad to finally get to chat with you. So this is good fun. I'm looking to diving in. Yeah. Um, so before we do dive in to mm. the Octaverse, um, if you want to give us an introduction to who Martin Woodward is. Sure. So I'm uh, uh, Martin Woodward. I'm um, VP of Developer Relations over at GitHub, so which is a fancy sounding title, but basically I I just uh, help the company understand, make sure we understand developers and kind of put the nerd cred into GitHub. And then from developers' point of view, make sure um, we're being listened to with inside the company, making sure open source um, communities are understood and like their their needs are taken into account as teams are building features, that sort of thing. So that's my job based in Northern Ireland. Um, but obviously, um, GitHub's a fully remote company. So um, my team's kind of spread around the world, um, helping people in their communities. So yeah, it's a, probably the best job in the world, but uh, it, it's pretty awesome. So I love it here. How'd you end up there? Oh man, yeah. So um, I did a start, probably like I had a real job for many, many years. And I, I would do kind of like working in banks and insurance companies and all the boring stuff and consultancy and things. Um, and when I was doing, I kind of straddled this world between kind of .NET and Java sort of space. And so when I was doing a paid gig that was in, say, the .NET Microsoft technologies, 
I would go do open source in some of the Java technologies or go do some Linux stuff or whatever. And then when I was getting paid to do Java stuff or Linuxy stuff or, you know, Mac stuff, I would go do some open source on the .NET side, on the Microsoft side. Again, keep my skills up to date, kind of scratch that itch, um, especially if you're in, you know, corporate jobs. There's usually lots of room to scratch itches and things, which you can't do during your day job. And so that's that's how I got into open source. And then I um, did a, um, there's a particular problem that I wanted to solve in, in open source world and kind of met met with a bunch of friends. And then we ended up getting called um, by magazines and companies wanting to basically talk about this thing we were building and kind of buy this thing we were building. And I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Maybe this should, we should turn this into a company. So we set up a company um, with a few friends over the internet and then in kind of the Java Eclipse space, figuring, but it was related to a Microsoft technology, figuring this is completely safe. Microsoft would never, ever, ever want to be anywhere near this, you know, because it's all Eclipse and Java and whatnot and open source related. And then um, wouldn't you know, Microsoft started to change as a company. And then in, um, so we started that company in 2005. And then in 2009, Microsoft actually um, acquired the company that me and a few of my mates did. Um, it's just a small company called Team Price. And then um, did that. I uh, came over to Microsoft, helped like Microsoft kind of get um, open source a bit better and help a bunch of that stuff. And then created Microsoft's GitHub account, was very friendly with GitHub um, as part of the work I was doing and with the Git community as well. And so then when we came to look at seriously, um, would we be a good home for GitHub? I was kind of um, part of the acquisition team over that side. And then after the acquisition happened, um, I was lucky enough to be offered a role over GitHub. So that was that was fantastic because um, as one of my former managers at Microsoft told me, I never quite belonged there, you know? I was never really, I never really fit in. And so uh, GitHub is definitely a great home for me. And I, I love it over here. Love the culture, love the people. Um, and obviously the community is superb. Amazing. Yeah, that's a great story. So yeah, you clearly have quite a long track record in the open source world. So I mean... I'm old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm old and don't have much hair left. I used to have hair when I was doing this. So, uh, yeah, all good. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot of us. Uh, I mean, I, I'm i not young. Let's put it that, that way. Um, I've been around the block a couple of times as well. Um, but I'm still but it's curious. It's the weekend before FOSDEM, and so I'm quite looking forward. You know, I'll be at FOSDEM uh, this weekend, uh, just after we're recording. And um, nice. it's... It's very reassuring. I mean, last year it was kind of back to how it you know was pre-pandemic. Um, and it's very reassuring to see that while, yes, you sort of see some of the same characters around, it's not all of the same characters. And there's plenty of new young people coming in to the open source community. And even better, um, the people that are coming in now don't all look like me and you, you know, there's a lot more um, diversity in the people that are joining, um, but also diversity of where they're coming from. They're not all from, you know, um, uh, Europe or, or North America, they're kind of spread around the world. And that's definitely represented both uh, when you see the community in person, but then as we start to dig in and look at some of the numbers as well, we, we, we really start to see that. 
Yeah, and that that segues way perfectly into the first two topics I've had here. So, oh, whoa, right. imagine that. Literally yeah. the first I one that I know this. This is not a setup. So I know, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing. Literally the first line I, ha- I have here is 2023 saw the largest number of first-time open source contributors, according to the Octaverse 2023 report. And my question was... Why do you think that is? What was the catalyst that that made 2023 be such? Because, I mean, I am passionate about getting people into open source. So seeing that was like, that's great. But now I want to know what triggered that. Yeah, it is good because we definitely, we saw a boost, you know, in, in the 2021 numbers which I think actually came was was kind of the pandemic effect because, um, you know, so many people were stuck at home and were kind of wanting outlets and things. And so as software developers, we were kind of, you know, doing more open source. And so we saw a really big peak in 2021. And that then actually, um, it declined a little bit in 2022. But if you look at the graph, it kind of, it's still showing an upwards trend from where it was in 2020, 2019. You know, the curve still plots kind of thing. It was just a slight peak. And so this year was definitely, or the, the, you know, the 2023 year was definitely one we were very, very interested in seeing. Like, is this, are we going to see a downward trend from that 2021 and level out? Or are we going to see the, the curve increase? Um, and to, to your point, we saw the curve increase to such an extent that it was it was beat the 2021 number of, um, of first time open source contributors. So, and as more than ever have contributed to open source ever in the history of humankind, you know, and this is just using GitHub numbers as a proxy of general open source contribution. Um, and so that's when we dig in and we kind of looked as to why. Um, we saw a few things. One was um, every country is growing, but some countries are growing more, and we can dig into the the particular regions which are growing, you know, substantially bigger than others. But we also saw um, it's very interesting looking at the projects that are attracting first time contributors, and you know, it's like things like VS Code and stuff, which is, you know, it's it's a tool which everybody uses. But um, people are actually prepared to contribute to it, which kind of says a lot about how they set up the architecture of VS Code and the community and how welcome it is. We did see a few projects like, um, yeah, the Stable Diffusion Web UI project, which everybody sort of was playing with last year. Um, previously, like in years past, we saw a lot of projects to do with like generative art as people were generating, you know, nfts um i was gonna insert a value judgment on those but as people were generating art we saw we saw like those projects boost up and they've obviously dropped back down again but we're seeing lots of people getting involved in kind of um these generative ai projects which is really good to see because obviously like gen ai and open source is kind of it's an interesting relationship right now um but the ones that are out there that are open source related seeing massive kind of um, uh, communities getting on board. And then we see the usual suspects like Home Assistant, which is what I use to power my house. Like that is a massive community. Um, Flutter is another big community out there as well. Um, so, and then, and then we also see people like Microsoft, like IBM, um, like um, 
Red Hat, like they push a lot of their documentation and they collaborate on a lot of that kind of stuff in the open nowadays. And that's an easy kind of first entry into the open source world. You don't have to know how to write C99 and send a patch file to a mailing list. You can go on, edit a markdown file in a web UI, send it off as a pull request, which you're kind of used to anyway, and boom, your contribution is now benefiting all of humankind kind of thing. So it's kind of a different, you know, where people are coming from, what they're contributing to, but also kind of lowering the bar in terms of how easy it is to make contributions in open source things. I think it's a combination of all of them, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. And I was thinking as you were talking, I I, I would assume that all the um, resources that GitHub has pushed into improving and giving you a, a whole bunch of tools just on github.com has also yeah. lowered that entry, you know, because previously it was like, you kind of had to pull up your terminal and learn some Git commands to just do a simple fork and if you just wanted to do a simple patch. I mean, now you could just press the little period key on your keyboard and it opens a web editor, you know, and like, so if you just want to make a quick contribution to a documentation thing, because you were reading the docs and you're like, oh my goodness, here's a little thing. And I think also a lot of the documentation, like, um, I guess you call it boilerplates like Starlight from Astro and Docusaurus and those. Yeah, they just come exactly. bundled with these edit links now on the page. And if you click that, it takes you straight to the source on GitHub. You press the little period key, and you're off to the races. You know, like I think that is a that is probably also a big factor in why so many people are contributing now. Uh, I hope so. It's definitely something that we're trying to make easier. Um, and I know, interestingly, you know, I, as I say, I'm off to FOSDEM at the weekend. Not everybody in the community agrees. Like some people deliberately kind of put gates in place. It's almost like a, you need to be, you need to figure this level out before we'll even take your contributions because they're kind of worried about their level of contributions. But I think if you're trying to get contributions from a broad community, if you're trying to get contributions that improve, say, your help and your documentation and and things which aren't that C99 code that talks to some obscure cryptography library, then um, making it as easy as possible to contribute is probably a, a good thing as far as the progress of open source is concerned. Um, and, you know, but every project should kind of set their own uh, set their own boundaries, I think, and, and decide how they want to run their communities. So, um, yeah, no, it's been, it's a fascinating time to be around and sort of see how everybody's changing, how everybody's kind of improving and, and, and getting better at making these changes. I have an interesting story actually about like, it's not an entirely positive story about those edit buttons in documentation. Mm -hmm. So, um, we kind of, uh, you know, we, we have open source libraries like everybody else in GitHub. You know, we have most of the, most of what makes GitHub is available as an open source library that people can go build and put, and put together. Um, and our documentation, like a lot of people is also open source and you can go in and you can edit it. Um, we were seeing a ton of, um, what we were thinking was spam, in you know like spam contributions in the documentation but it wasn't like traditional spam that we have automation that like and rule and and logic that can detect and weed out you know like people trying to insert links and trying to do all this sort of stuff it was weird it was like random random text and we were like what's going and and it wasn't coming from like 
bot accounts, you know, like accounts that had been created and then sent some spam and, and like kind of inactive. It was accounts that had, were perfectly active and didn't look spammy elsewhere. Super weird. And we couldn't figure out what was going on. And we did tons of iterations and we, like, we were looking at different product improvements, looking at different things, trying to find rules and stuff. And eventually, after much looking, we, we looked at the data and we were seeing that a lot of these pull requests that we were getting, they were disproportionately coming from uh, mobile devices, specifically Android. And we're like, what, what is going on here? And then as most problems end up happening, it, it, it came down to a developer hunch. And one of the developers was like, ah, I'm going to get, I'm going to bring up the doc site on my Android phone and see what's going on. Brought the doc site on their Android phone. And they noticed that the edit button was massive on Andro- on in Chrome on certain flavors of Android. And so, um, especially non-English speaking people were seeing a, were like pressing a button, trying to get out of documentation, hitting it. And then they went straight into the edit PR page and then they'd no idea what they were doing. And then, so they were hitting random characters to try and get out. And that's how they were submitting what we were calling spammy pull requests. It was actually our fault. We were kind of DDoSing ourselves by confusing our users. And so we we kind of tested that hypothesis by um, by just disabling the edit button on Android to begin with and see if that worked. And boom, all of the spam went away. So then eventually we we made an edit button that was, you know, correctly sized in the CSS on that browser and also didn't take you straight into the um, it took it took you to the file. It didn't take you straight to the edit page that then put you into the dialog. So it's an interesting thing how user experience and like you know when you start to see spam or when you start to see weird results is to try and track the motivations of that stuff back and understand why that was happening to you. But yeah, otherwise, open source documentation is a fantastic success. Don't let me put you off, but you know, be careful. Yeah, for sure. But that's super interesting. Um, <clears throat> I think. I think a lot of, I think it's one of those situations where I was speaking to somebody yesterday and they remind, and it reminded me of this whole thing where if your phone drops down to like 3G type connections, like a decent 3G, you realize how little of the internet you can access. And I think it's, it's one of those things as well where you don't really test because you're like, I don't know if people still use this thing on this specific ancient version of Android, but there are still people using it. And I mean, I I understand like there's the technology itself, but also just so the technology we use to build the things and the things we build move so fast that it's, it's really hard unless you have massive teams with a ton of resources to be able to always go back you you have to at some point make a cutoff and say, oh my goodness, I just hope this doesn't break the world for somebody that's trying to, to use our application or our website or whatever the case may be. Um, but it's amazing that you were able to to narrow it down and, and solve it. That's, that's pretty Took cool. us a while. Yeah, but, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and it was lots of like false starts and in the end you just have to kind of follow the data you know but it's following it in the right way you can imagine all of the the 199 wrong paths we took before we looked at the user agent of the people who were submitting stuff and tried to trace that back so yeah it's uh 
one of those things. But the number of times when you're doing some website development and, you know, it, it works fine, but then you open it up in some random version of mobile Safari or something and it com- behaves completely different to the mobile, to like Safari on the desktop. or um, And it's always the devices that are hardest for you to test that they're always the ones that are wrong. Always the way, but hey, that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, I, I ran into a thing today where it wasn't even, it was literally when you run the thing locally so if you do npm run dev yeah everything's cool when it's run through ci and it's published the text is way over on the left hand side it's like what the heck's going on (laughs) so when you run npm run build and then you serve the the stuff that it's spit out on the other side it messes up the css somehow during the build process so that was fun those are always those Bugs that's so hard to reproduce because somebody was sending me a screenshot and saying like the text is not sent. And I'm like, what do you mean the text is not sent? And I sent them a video. On my machine. Yeah. yeah, I sent them a video where I'm like <laughs> literally resizing the window like in Safari and in Firefox and in Chrome. I was like, well, I don't know yeah. what. And they're like, are you testing it just locally or are you testing the preview site as well? And I'm like, no, just testing locally. And they're like, check the preview yeah. site. And I was like, what's going on? <laughs> and then I was yeah. like, oh, what's different between these two? The bold step. And the bull yeah. steps, am I missing it up? Go figure. Those are hard bugs yeah. to trace. But um, definitely, you mentioned about um, the countries, uh, yeah. some some growing much, and and so I want to dig into that because me being from South Africa, um, I I've spoken to some other folks, and I'm always like, I mean, we've talked about why contribution in Africa is so low compared because if you look at the at the map and you look at the heat map that's overlaid in the Octavos report. Like the entirety of the African content is this like um, purp- light purplish, like bluish color, right? Which means it's low low activity. And so, I mean, one of the things that's an obvious reason of why this, well, one of the hypotheses of why this is, is because money, right? And access mm-hmm. to stable, reliable infrastructure. Um, yeah. When you combine those two, you're like, any free time I have is very little, and even then, I almost feel like I need to do something where I'm getting paid. So it's really hard to sell that value add where it's like, yes, but you could potentially grow as a developer or be seen by the right person by contributing to open source. So not only are you learning, but you could also like kind of network and find opportunities that could give you that. But it's like, yeah, but right now, my family needs to eat. So that's where mm-hmm. your focus is, right? And I think a lot of the countries that are growing now, because if I looked at the heat map, is like your South America, India, those kinds of areas. And they all have this thing in common, right? So I'm assuming what might be happening, and please, you, you'll you know more about this than me, but could it be that some of these areas are developing economically? And as a result, people have that flexibility where they have that bit of free time where they feel like, I can spend this doing some free work in quotes. Mm-hmm. I think it's a combination. So there is definitely an economic issue, um, and not it's not and it's not just free time, but it's also like the cost of bandwidth. You know, the the cost of bandwidth in South Africa is substantially different to the cost of bandwidth in you know Ireland, uh, where you've got every single thing like arriving as in as an in, in an interconnect rather than the cable going around the continent kind of thing you've got um 
access to equipment and uh, machines. Um, the same, literally the same laptop can cost 10 times as much on the streets in Nigeria as it costs on the streets of New York. Like, how does that work? Because I guarantee those people aren't getting paid 10 times more. And so, you know, it, and then there's, to your point, you know, the, the free time, the access to daylight, like the access to people having lighting as well as reliable internet. So yes, definitely an economic thing. Interestingly, with open source, we're seeing that the barriers are lowering now that though, you know, lots of people in um, developing uh, countries can, um, get access to the internet now and then through especially through mobile networks and things and are now using that access um to further themselves to grow uh to do build all the skills development that you're saying um what's really interesting that we see a lot um, we see, for example, India is growing incredibly fast and it has a, but it also has a great education system. It has a young population that's coming up and learning, you know, learning new skills. It also has like this kind of economic, um, incentive there because there are like you know india historically had like these gsi companies the 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 systems large systems integration companies so there were careers for people to aspire to to go learn technology and then go go into and so it seems to go through these phases where you have to like build some kind of core infrastructure you have to have some companies in there to provide a career path uh, but then you notice like a pivot from kind of working for an established company to then being entrepreneurial. And you look at India today and it's in VIT is incredibly entrepreneurial. And that's because they, people grew up, they were learning technology because they knew there was a career path there and then decided to be more entrepreneurial and go into that side and, and, you know, and, and kind of skipped going through the kind of corporate path. Fascinating. Um, we see a lot of those people and we see a lot of the community in general um, being incredibly keen on access to learning. And the pandemic helped those people enormously because a lot of the content went online rather than in person. And so now these countries and these people have access to all these learning materials, a lot of which are available through open source projects. And they're able to go in and learn as if they were sat you can take the Harvard CS50 class as if you're sat in Harvard. You can do that from anywhere in the world as long as you have a cell phone connection and you have a computer that can can play the videos and you can, you know, it's all run on a thing called GitHub code spaces, which you don't even need a powerful computer. You can fire up a code space and then we run that computer for you in the cloud and you can access it from your Chromebook or whatever, you know, so you don't even need like super high spec machines and things. Um, so it allows those people to compete at the best. We see a lot more hunger from those uh, from in those regions for learning information and for career growth. And so when you look at the motivations for contributing, um, a lot of it is, yeah, related to you, related to networking, career growth, like learning new technologies, all that sort of good stuff. Um, India is a standout. Looking at the way India is growing, it like last year it grew 36%, I think it was year over year. Whereas, you know, America is still growing. It ain't growing at 36% year over year. 
And so if we project kind of linearly, so, and this was dumb, like Martin math, this wasn't, you know, proper like uh, data science or anything, but if we project forwards, the linear growth that we're seeing last year uh, compared, you know, and project this forwards on the numbers, we actually see India could overtake the United States in terms of global, you know, in terms of uh, developer population entirety by about 26, 27 kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's a huge change. But then we also see um, like in Indonesia and uh, Japan, interestingly, growing massively and, and Japan isn't a developing nation. So, you know, what's going on there in terms of the technology growth and, um, you know, people kind of getting involved again in open source and Indonesia is one thing where it's definitely, you know, economically related, uh, related to people, um, finding careers and building, you know, in tech, Japan seems to be more about the technologies. It actually seems to be, um, Japan seems to be pretty far ahead when it comes to AI. And so economically, we're not, we're now seeing like a leveling of the playing field when it comes to open source, where we're not yet seeing a leveling of the playing field is when you look at the countries that are involved in generative AI projects, that very much is the G20, you know, that is the richer countries rather than, um, again, because access to compute is still expensive, even though access to bandwidth has reduced. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating to kind of see a, a global scale of how it, how it works. And, um, yeah, it's re- really, really interesting. I think Nigeria in Africa, Nigeria is definitely the top um, growing country on the continent. Again, good education system, um, very young uh, population of people who were at school and a very, it's a very, very entrepreneurial population. They've kind of, they do have some large companies there, but really it's people are jumping straight into the entrepreneurial space. Um, but then we're also seeing like, uh, you know, Ghana and Kenya growing quite fast and Morocco has always been really big as well, but it's had a very kind of, you know, cause it's close to Europe. It has that nearshore kind of relationship. There's lots of, you know, offshoring, nearshoring that happens in Morocco, which has always helped. So that's why it's always been big. And South Africa as well, as you know, has always been a big kind of, um, has a, has a strong financial sector, uh, which then helps it grow and kind of, you know, perform, but it, it doesn't have the same population sizes and the same kind of, um, uh, yeah, it doesn't have that same kind of population growth that some of the other countries are having as well. So it's, it's yeah, fascinating yeah. to see. No, it is. It is for sure. And I also saw in the Octopus report that the National University of Singapore, its School of Computing, like they've incorporated GetUp into their curriculum. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that obviously needs, has an impact. It really does. And lots of the larger tech schools do this now because they're, they're trying to make transferable skills for people. And so people learn how to use GitHub. Not only can they do open source, learn from the best in the world, collaborate with the best in the world in open source, but their skills that they can take via their employers as well as more and more employers are using GitHub to build like the best as well. And so it's a transferable skill. And it also helps them learn Singapore's really good at like kind of teaching real job skills. And so um, it kind of helps teach them how to collaborate with people, which as you know, is basically 90% of our job is, you know, working with others. It isn't sadly just coding on our own kind of thing. Singapore's crazy though, because it's um, like, it's got over a million people with have GitHub accounts in Singapore. I don't understand that because the population of it's a city state with like 7 million people or something. And like, so if you go to a party, 
more than one in 10 people in that party will have a GitHub account. So I'm, I'm definitely taking my hoodie when I go to a party in Singapore. So uh, should be good. That's amazing. Um, I, I noticed talking about um, like transferable skill and being uh, yeah. valuable in the corporate sector or just in the, you know, not open source developers type yeah. thing, you know, yeah. um, 80% of contributions are made to private repositories. I was, I was mm-hmm. surprised by that. And I think it's simply because I've kind of assumed, I've, I've kind of looked at GitHub as the home of open source. And you would yeah. think that that would default to public repos, right? Yeah. But is this a change um, where a, a lot more has moved towards private repos? Or has this always been the case that it's just now been surfaced? Um it's the percentages have actually been fairly consistent over GitHub's life. Um, it goes in in different waves, but um, eighty percent is pretty common if you look over the past few years from memory. Um, the big change, the last big change that we saw was, gosh, was that about that was about twenty twenty, I think, when we um, we we did a change. It used to be with GitHub that um, if you wanted. Uh, you paid by the private repo, basically. So if you wanted privacy, if you didn't want to do things in the open, then um, you paid for the privilege. And that was how we how GitHub was funded. <clears throat> GitHub changed its funding model around about 2020 to um, have a free tier, and that free tier include a certain level of private collaboration with teams. Um, for various reasons. One is to just encourage people to use GitHub for all their work, not just open source work, but also um, a lot of what we talk about in terms of, you know, ability to access this technology and compete like the best, you know, it felt like the responsible thing to do to, to enable that, like rather than forcing people to do things in the open when they maybe shouldn't be. We wanted to make sure that being open was a deliberate decision, that you were deliberately collaborating when you were being open. You weren't just doing it to avoid paying us money if you know what I mean um and then um so we saw we saw a a jump then but yeah you've got to remember as well when you're being like there's open source which you do at at the weekends and at home and everything else and that's great but when you pay to work on a project hopefully you do quite a lot of work and so the like if you're being paid to work on um a particular repository if you've got you know 50,000 people in your company as developers, then they rack up a lot of contributions. And so um, you see a lot of that activity comes from from private collaboration. So, yeah. But it is an interesting thing because when people are looking at the scale, we, we kind of threw that number in because people kind of see the scale that Gibbs working at and things. And there's some fascinating engineering challenges that go on when you're trying to operate at that scale. Um, and then when you realize, when you sit back and think, oh, hang on a minute, the stuff I can see is literally the tip of the iceberg. Like it's less than 20% of what's really going on under here. Crikey, no wonder, no wonder it takes a while to roll out that change to the pull request UI because it affects a lot of people. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I've shown, I mean, I've, I've seen this with uh, the GitHub Docs, for example. Um, yeah. There there was this, this bug where... Um, the sidebar, like the right-hand TOC sidebar, would be very, very light in light mode, almost to the point where you can't you can't see it. Like if you don't have decent vision, you most definitely right. will not be able Nightmare. to see it. 
Yeah, and and I actually filed the issue about it, um, and we had a quite a back and forth, back and forth, and then it kind of went quiet. And I was surprised that it wasn't addressed quicker because I was like, this yeah. is this is a big thing, you know, why isn't it? And then um, a friend, very good friend of mine, works on the GitHub Docs team, and we were chatting, and he told me that you're just unfortunate that you're seeing it because when we look at our stats, the people affected by that is like 0.35% of the people looking at the docs website. Yeah. And therefore it's just deprioritized, which makes hundred percent sense, right? Cause it's 0.35%. There's obviously other bugs that affect 80% of the code of, of people reading GitHub docs. So when you need to, if you have limited resources, again, you need to say, where do I put my resources? The 0.35% that's being affected or yeah. the 80% that's being affected. It sucks for me and the other people who face that. Well, that's that the problem. Because if you're what, yeah, exactly. It's, um, even though you may be a small percentage of the population affected, it's affecting you 100% of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that that's the, um, that's the thing we're always trying to balance when we do that. I mean, that has been fixed now, I think, that particular issue, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. I seem to remember. It was fixed. Um, yeah. But... Um, yeah, I remember when that book went in. I didn't realize you'd reported that one, so that was excited. So um, uh, that team used to report to me until quite recently. So yeah, I do remember that happening. But the um, yeah, it's it's that's actually something I have a bit of a problem with in terms of, in general in terms of running services. One of the things that we like to do is actually look at the when you run a big service, it's very very easy to have a high nine like uptime. Because part of a service is up somewhere most of the time, you know what I mean. And so, like, if you measure, like, so you can you could kind of blur the lines and measure it at like whatever, hundred percent. But um, one of the things we like to kind of do is kind of break down the experience per customer and like what what is it, what is the uptime for these people, and then look at the outstanding, like the you know what's the sort of um, 90th percentile uptime experienced rather than what is the 99%, you know what I mean? And look at those kind of things a bit more because, again, if you were – we've had problems with, say, occasionally like ISPs will do some routing issue and take GitHub out for an entire country. Um not our fault, not something we've done, but we need to go fix it because that's affecting 100% of that audience. And while our traffic might have not noticeably changed if it happens to be a smaller country, we need to go work with whoever the ISP is in that region to help them understand the impact of what they've just done. So it's um, the joys of running a large global service. This is why they call it work. But uh, um, one of the absolutely the best things about GitHub is that um, our audience are developers. And like, so we only ever talk to developers really or people who kind of understand tech. And so if you explain what's happened and why, and you explain why it's a problem, like as long as you're not being stupid, then people people are generally super nice because they're like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a hard problem. Oof, I'm glad that one's not mine. Um, whereas, like, I used to work in one of these real jobs I had was doing IT for healthcare professionals. Oh, my goodness, doctors are shouty. Like, if, you, if you've got a problem, they, they scream and shout at you because they, they're like high-paid consultants. They're used to people bowing to their every whim. And when you tell them, sorry, computers can't do that, they're like... Rrr, 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 rrr. 
you know, all this sort of stuff. So our audience are the most delightful, nice people that you just have to not BS and just be open with. And then generally they're like, yeah, okay. And, 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 and yes, if it's a hundred percent affecting you, you can get very upset about it sometimes. Why, why aren't they listening? Why aren't they understanding me? You know, and, and it's very hard to say to somebody, um, I know it's affecting you. I appreciate that this is a real issue for you. However, it's like you are, you know, is, is, there are a hundred and odd million people on the platform. And I'm sorry to say this is, you're a very small percentage of the people this is affecting right now, but we will get to it. It's just not the top priority for us at this moment. Or there's other times where it's like, yeah, we don't kind of agree with what you're saying there. Like, uh, I appreciate you want to do it that way, but we actually want to go this way. And sometimes you get disagreements of thing. And because people love GitHub so much, because GitHub is their home where they spend a lot of time, it's where they meet a lot of their community. Um, it's it, it, people get very, very passionate about that experience. And so it's, you know, my part of my job is helping people channel that passion into the right places to ensure that they get listened to rather than just feeling like they're shouting into the void. You know, that's what I don't want to happen because that's just frustrating for them and frustrating for everybody, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's hard to admit that because I know a lot of people are sensitive to, to the whole thing of it's only zero point X percent. So therefore, you know, like, I think especially like myself who are, you know, I'm passionate about web accessibility and this is a common yes. phrase you hear. It's like, uh, yeah, but it's like only 1% of our users. And then it's oh, like, yeah. okay, how many users do you have? Well, we have got like 17 million. Okay. What is 1% of 17 million? And then it's yeah. like, okay, if you put it that way, but then, you know, then you have yeah, but to, you also want, you're unlocking a lot of GDP for for the world by opening yeah. up to that percentage of people, and you, we we talked about um, a bandwidth earlier. One of the things that we found we've been doing we've been tr- trying to do a lot more kind of accessibility improvements across the site. I hope you might have noticed, like we've been trying anyway. We've been I'm doing aware. a lot of work on it. <laughs> okay, great. So. Um, but we're finding lots of ancillary benefits that, you know, affect everybody who isn't temporarily um, and, and, you know, physically enabled kind of thing. Um, it helps every single person, whether it's people who have bandwidth issues, where it's wherever it's people, you know, we, we actually find that the UIs we create tend to be a lot easier to test, tend to be a lot, um, like introduce a lot less defects across different browsers because again we've we've had to like do it in a compliant way that like works with different readers and works across browsers and so it while it can feel like a tax sometimes it actually enforces um we we found it to be a net positive for all of our users to do that work um and you know and yeah there's diminishing returns like we have a bunch of videos right now um and the video, pl- we embed the YouTube video player and the YouTube video player isn't the most accessible video player on the market. We could do better, but that would mean going to a whole different service. And it would also mean that the accessibility of those videos for people who only have, um, whose ISPs and things allow YouTube because they can't not allow YouTube, but they would maybe block some random video serving site. Um, Mm -hmm. um, You know, so you're kind of weighing things up there a little bit, but for the vast majority of time, um, it definitely makes it better for everybody is what we've, what we've found. So yeah, which is a positive, I guess. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and as you said, like, it, get up for a lot of people. It's it's a very personal thing, almost. Like, it's yeah. it's this it's this company, you know, in in the United States. But for a lot of people, it feels more like, no, this is where I meet my friends and we we make cool stuff. Yeah. So, but I think one of the things is what we've seen in open source. If we get to maybe the more serious side of things, then yeah, it is like. The supply chain, which people have different feelings about, like I don't like, I don't quite like the supply chain thing, but it, in, in a way, in essence, it, what it boils down to is the supply chain, is the security of this. Now, there's there's a lot of different companies that has jumped up and, and trying to solve this. GitHub is also doing from their side quite a lot, and I think that is yeah. one of the things that was part of the Octo Octavis report is the state of security in open source. Um, I'd like you to dig into that a little bit and some of the new stuff, or maybe some things that's been around on GitHub for a while, but is now really fully baked. For example, is a really simple thing that I just love is that I can summon Dependabot now with a at Dependabot, which I've always been like, why can't I just do that? I, then I always have to go copy the at Dependabot re, rebase or a, a recreate yeah. thingy. Now you can just summon it at Dependabot and tell it what you want it to do. Um, small little thing, but that's just a UX improvement. But I, I think in terms of security, like protected branches, good QL, secret scanning, all that kind of stuff. If maybe you want to unpack a little bit about what you've learned about the state of security and open source and what GitHub is doing about that. Yeah, for sure. For addressing the the sort of the, some of the community stuff first, I think what people rightly have a problem with is um, I'm maintaining this library for free in my spare time. You, Mister Bank or Insurance Company, are not allowed to come in and tell me my stuff has to be secure. Like uh, it'll be what it is. I'm shipping it. If you want to, if you want to have requirements on me, give me some money. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, so there is, um, I think when we're dealing with one of the things we try and do when we're dealing with open source security and talking to companies is constantly emphasize it's their problem, not the maintainer's problem. You know what I mean? It's like, um, uh, and we re we're trying to do a lot to kind of raise awareness, especially within our commercial contracts and with our enterprises that we work with, that people who are working in open source are very often doing it for free, very often doing it in their spare time. And this is the respectful way to talk to people. This is how you approach the community. You know, I raise awareness there. And I think we need to do that. And it's, you know, we we have to, we'd like, we make money by by hosting it. We make money by serving those 80% of people that do things in private kind of thing. So we need to go do that. And I completely get where they're coming from. But what we need to do, therefore, is make like security is too hard today. It just is for everybody. And you, as an open source maintainer, you and you don't you don't want to be spending your time like dealing with a bunch of blur and admin and creating CVE numbers and doing all that stuff. Like you want to spend most of your time fixing the usually fixing the issues that affect you, fixing the issues that affect your community. <clears throat> and coding and solving problems. That's why, that's why you got involved. So we're trying to make it so the tooling and things is helping open source maintainers do the stuff they enjoy more and not do the stuff they hate as much or spend as much time on it. So you mentioned Dependabot 
Uh, Dependabot's a great example where we make it available for free to open source projects. Um, we obviously charge commercial companies for using it. That's one of those kind of free or paid features for private projects that we have. Um, I think it was about um, 60% more Dependabot pull requests got merged in 23 than in 2022. So we're actually seeing a massive rise in people leveraging autom- so what what people don't know if people don't know who aren't listening dependabot is a a thing you can enable it will tell you when um it detects an um a library that you're that you're pulling in as a dependency um it detect tells you when it detects um a new version of that library um because of a security problem and lets you know what the vulnerability is lets you know how to upgrade it and it even sends you a what's cool is it even sends you a pr which helps you upgrade it now um that's great but as we all know with open source dependencies you get into kind of dependency hell sometimes and one might want to be on this version another wants to might be on this so we're we're doing lots of things to try and help address that side as well because it still isn't as easy as it could be but um it definitely helps and for me when i see those it, it helps me remind me that i need to go do this and and now thankfully to like if you've got your builds set up with GitHub Actions, so you've got some CI set up. You may be using Codespaces or something. It's super easy to test that, that like, can I merge this easily? Does it work? Okay, great. I'll, I'll update the version, and, and or do I need to do a bit more work and investigate it? So, yeah, we've seen a lot more people use it, which is good. Um, the other thing that we switched on last year was um, some branch protection functionality. Um, and... We are. Um, we now have the ability to. Um, so branch protections is you know control who can kind of push to a certain branch and things. And uh, do you have to like? Can you push to main or do you have to go via a PR, for example? Um, one of the things that we switched on late last year was actually um, you can opt into this now, uh, where you can. Have, have a protection for accidentally pushing secrets. So say if you were accidentally going to push a GitHub pat or a, I don't know, like your AWS key or an Azure key or something like that into your GitHub repo, it will tell you when you do the push, in, even from the Git command line, it tells you, hey, um, that looks like it contains a secret. Do you really want to do this? Now, what I love about the error message that they send back is it contains a URL that you can actually, you know, command click on or control click on, whatever. Um, and that will go back to the GitHub UI and it'll let you say, yeah, this is test data or yeah, no, I really want to do this. And, you know, you can you can get unblocked easily. So as a developer, it doesn't stop me doing my job, but it gives you that level of protection because once you've pushed that secret out into the public, you now you can't take that secret back. It's now in history. Like doing a like a rewrite and force pushing is a nightmare. It's also out there. Somebody might have grabbed it. You, basically, the only secure way is to rotate that secret to get rid of it. We do have some tooling which will automatically wrote you know automatically disable that token for you um, with people like AWS or Azure or you know GitHub Apps or whatever. Um, if you do accidentally push them, but it's better to just avoid it getting there in the first place. So we've got that. That was actually that's opt in at the moment. One of the things we want to do um, in the future is make that opt out. 
Um, but we're letting it we're letting it work for a while, seeing how people use it, making sure everybody's getting on fine with it, and then at some point we'll make it the default that people can opt out of if they don't want that kind of protection. But most people should have it on, to be honest. Um, and then we're also seeing um, kind of a bunch of work around. Um, we're trying to help make it easier for security researchers to um, be able to responsibly disclose to open source projects when they found a vulnerability in their work and do it in a way that doesn't like zero day the entire community and then uh, help you um, as a maintainer create what's called a security advisory um, and then and then from that we actually we actually are a, a CVE numbering authority now. So we can help you create those, you know, um, like a formal, you know, vulnerability number, which you can then create. And then we act as a registrar for it so that, and then that becomes public data when you do that. You know, everybody in the world of a security tool can see that as a thing and can access it. It's not just, you're not just feeding Dependabot with cool data, you're feeding the whole like universe of security tooling. So we're doing those things to kind of try and make security easier for maintainers and make it so it's less work for them, less friction, um, rather than pushing down the whole S-bomb supply chain thing, you know, which is kind of where you're kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to make it easier to, to follow along with rather than trying to push down the needs of large organizations. For the large organizations, we do provide those tooling and things and help them with their private stuff and help them get data from, you know, security improvements to the open source community. But really for the open source world, it's about how do we make your life easier? That's kind of the approach we take. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. No, totally. That okay. makes sense. Um, when you say um, with the secret scanning opt in, yeah. how do you, how do people opt in? How do you know you haven't opted in? Like, where do you check? Ah, I I will send you a link to put into the show notes. Um, but basically, it's the setting within the repo settings. Um, you go and you look in there around um, code security. I think it is on the left hand side. I'd have to actually look at. That. I'll find I'll find the blog post where where we explain it, and I'll send you a link. Brilliant. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's great. Um, I think um, I have two things that I'd like to touch on while we still have yeah. some time. The one is a, a topic that we hardly can not talk about when we think about 2023, and that is those two letters A and I that that like uh -huh. really blew up, and um, yep. it's everywhere. And I think it's 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 not entirely a people love it or hate it. But it felt there was a period of time where there was pretty much those two schools of thought. Like some people thought it's the greatest thing ever. Other people thought it's the worst thing ever. I kind of started off on on the good side, went all the way to the other side. And now I think I'm mm -hmm. kind of in the middle. Okay. Um, my biggest concern, one of my biggest concerns was around um, excluding people, right, from this yeah. big change and how – essentially the world's going to work. You know, when the internet came yep. about, it changed everything. Yeah. And there was this digital divide that people talked about, right, that happened. And and I think one of the things that I was Very really real with seniors and things like that as well, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I was really worried about that. Are we going to do that again now? We're going to have those who have and those who have not, right? Um, and so 
as a result, I was I was on the like <clears throat> kind of like negative about it. I was like, how many people are going to lose their livelihood due to this? How many people are going to be able to participate? And again, talking from an African perspective, right? Yeah. Like, if you think about compute power, like, yeah, I have a I have a, a M2 MacBook Air with eight eight gigs of memory, right? But if I try to run even Whisper on here, this thing struggles. You know, I can almost do nothing else. I just have to let it do the transcription from audio and then I can carry on and do something else. Now, thankfully, we have Hugging Face. <laughs> that That is what a lot of people are calling the get up for open source. Uh, I mean, for open source LLMs um, that allows you to run a lot of these things in the cloud on, on like super powerful hardware um, for free uh, for the most part. Um but so yeah, that that that's why I was really concerned about it, and I st- still do have some of that concern there. And I think it's it's healthy. We shouldn't just let go and jump all the way in the other side of the pool. Um, so, and I think Microsoft and then GitHub has really embraced this. And some people didn't like it. Some people really didn't like it. Other people are super excited about it. So it, it's totally a mixed bag, and I think it will be for a while. And I think a lot of it's based on the uncertainty of, yeah. you know, this is new. Like, what? The, I'm not sure how I feel about this yet. Now it's everywhere, and I don't know what to do about it. I can't avoid it. It's everywhere. Um, what do you think about the whole AI renaissance and how it's mm-hmm. just filtering and everything because I think open source plays a key role here. Like, I mean, clearly when Google came out and said, we have no moat because open source is one when it comes to this whole AI thing, a lot of people were like, well, that's interesting. So I think open source is a key player here, right? Um, Hugging Face and other uh, open source like um, Meta. Meta has been Mm -hmm. amazing jumping into the open source uh, AI space. Mm -hmm. And all the thing, yeah, they're just donating more and more stuff into as open source, to open source also, not just open source friendly. Mm-hmm. I just like to know just your thoughts basically around yeah. like GitHub's embrace of AI and AI yeah. into into GitHub, and then just more broadly, like from from personal, like how you feel about this this whole change yeah, in yeah. technology. So I think it's important to acknowledge there is a hype cycle around the AI stuff, and like um, you know, it's so easy. Um, one of the problems with LLMs is it's so easy to have like a, a proof of concept demo, uh, with, you know, you get the prompt, right. Um, you do a demo in the happy path and this thing looks like it's magic, you know, but the minute you'd like veer off the happy path or you start to try and do strange things to the prompt, then things go horribly, horribly wrong sometimes. So, um, Building a product that people will actually pay for that's based on LLM is significantly harder than, as as the co-pilot team at GitHub will tell you, than than just like shipping an LLM, than just like doing an LLM demo. But they they're, they're the one of the ones that have been successful, and one of the reasons is because they're considering the ethics of everything up front and like building things as they go. Uh, one of the key things when we were launching Copilot. Uh, we had an internal discussion around the haves and have nots. And so we made it free for students and teachers because we realized that 
like one of the concerns is going to be, well, all the kids can cheat on exams because it's, it's like Cobite is ridiculously good at doing, you know, like leak code kind of questions and things like this. Like it's amazing and that sort of stuff. So we knew we needed to make it available for teachers for free as well to kind of understand um, how it should be used responsibly. And, you know, like just, just, just like when, imagine if, Imagine if Casio could have given everybody for free pocket calculators in schools when they launched calculators, you know, like, but we have the ability to do this with software, which is pretty cool. And then we also give Copilot away um, for free to the maintainers of like the, the, the most popular open source software. We can't make it free for everybody who contributes to any public repo because that's basically everybody. And as you point out, it, it costs an insane amount of money to kind of run these models and things like that. Like there's a, there's a non-trivial compute cost there that we have to be responsible with, but we factor in like, you know, how many people do we have coming in um, through the pay channels? How much do we have? And then use that to kind of help us, you know, provide access to Copilot for everybody else. Um, So that's important for us. The other thing that's fascinating is um, making sure that, um your tools are used in a responsible way so we very deliberately keep you on track for programming questions uh with copilot like yeah sure you know because there is compute cost there and while it might not be while you might be paying for it we're still using electrons and while all of our electricity is green you know is from renewable sources if we weren't using it, somebody else could be using that same renewable energy. So while we're not personally burning a tree for like you looking up a taco recipe in chat GPT or whatever, um, some like it's not free. You know what I mean? Like the, those electrons are being, those, those are resources that are being consumed from the planet and so they should be used in a responsible way. And so again, we try and constrain the co-pilot, you know, GitHub Copilot to be answering questions around programming stuff. We look at people's intent. We try and help make sure that um, we're not helping you do, you know, fundamentally bad things, you know, define bad however you want. And then the suggestions that come back, um are unique are as secure as possible like we run models on the results that get back to make sure we're not we're not teaching you an insecure way of coding that we're trying to teach you a more secure way of coding we're slowly trying to improve the state of the art of of the code suggestions that come back so all those things are important i think in general around ai one of the interesting data points from the octaverse report is that I mentioned this earlier, like if we look at the top 10 countries doing open source, um, we see, you know, one set of results. But when we took at the, look at the top 10 countries doing generative AI, it's like US, India, and then you see a, start, a sharp drop, and then it's like Japan, you know, uh, Hong Kong, UK, it's like richer countries. Brazil's up there, but it's the fairly rich countries plus China and uh, um, Singapore's up there as well. So there's obviously an issue when it comes to like local compute. And that's where providing access to the cloud, I think, is super important. Um, Providing um, access in as, um, as, uh, you know, as easy way as possible. And then one of the fascinating benefits of large language models is that they are amazing at translating between human languages 
and programming languages and vice versa. And so while you can ask Copilot in English, please explain this code to me, you can just as easily ask it in Hindu, um, in, you know, one of, you know, hundreds of different languages and dialects. And it knows enough in its training set about most languages that it can give you a really good answer in your local language. And so back to our earlier point about democratizing access, hopefully by providing access to some of these functionalities around like explain this and can you do this for me, bridging between natural languages and programming languages, we're kind of, again, increasing the access to who can be a developer to a broader set of people and not requiring, you know, college level English as a requirement to be a software developer anymore which is great, but back to your original point, well, what does that mean about careers and jobs and all this sort of stuff? The day that a customer can tell you what they want, um, then maybe maybe a computer stands a chance of doing it. But actually, like, you still need computational thinking. You still need to know how to break down a problem and solve it in a creative way. What's the minimum, like we all know, like um, whenever you're doing optimizations of programs and things, the trick isn't to get the computer to do more work quicker. The trick to do optimizations is to get the computer to do less work. And that's the same thing whenever you're automating any kind of processes, whenever you're making any improvements, whenever you're building any software, the way you get the computer to do stuff is to make it do less work really, rather than do more work quicker. And we, that is a creative act. That is a problem-solving act which involves the creation of original ideas. Computers do not do that. They do not create ideas. Computers are now good at language, um, and that's a new thing. And they have this ability to translate between programming languages and natural languages. This is a new thing that's happened you know, since 2018. But um, they're not creative, and so we still need you know, people to be able to do that. And we also need to make sure as we're doing that, that we bake, uh, we bake safeguards in all the way along. We're baking responsibility, you know, responsible use of this technology, both from an ethical point of view, but also from a, a resource point of view and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And it's just like behoovent on us because this is an epoch, undoubtedly, like you've been around, we mentioned at the beginning, we've both been around a while. This is the biggest change I've seen since the internet probably came in. Um, so while there is a lot of hype, it's deserved hype in most areas. And um, yeah, it's, it's just behooven on us to make sure we build the systems that we want to see, that we're very conscious of our biases as we build these systems so that we can make sure we're testing for the resulting systems to make sure they don't, we're not hard coding in the biases of ourselves into this next generation of systems and um yeah just keep doing that as we go on and um and keep testing for it and thankfully the community um if we as long as we provide them access to stuff and be open um the community will keep us honest i believe and the, the, the you know the company the market will keep us honest as well so i'm quite excited and quite positive about the future if i'm honest it's definitely very very exciting but um i think it is up to us to do things in an, in an ethical uh, way as we go on
that's probably my old open source roots coming in there though, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. But I think it's good. It's good to know that, you know, there are people that are thinking about it and it's not just, you know, we need to, we need to put this into every little, every system possible because it's the new thing, you know, it's like, yes, but are we actually solving a problem? There's a lot, there's a huge conversation we have about right size models um, around resource usage, you know, and like making sure you you like, for example, I'll give you like a right now uh, in Copilot, um, you have like, you can be typing and it can give you code completions as you're typing, or you can ask a question in the chat interface and it gives you a response. When you're typing, the LLM behind that model is actually today, and it changes over time because you know we keep incrementing models, we keep improving things. Right now, it's Chat GPT. It's sorry, it's uh, GPT three five Turbo is the model that it's talking to. Um, if you're using the chat interface and then some other areas, that's using GPT four, and so GPT four significantly greater context, um, oftentimes better results based on the context you're giving it. Um, but the the amount of energy consumption per transaction, the amount of resource consumption per transaction is a lot greater. If you're typing, you don't you maybe don't need all that, and the amount of completion it's giving you is typically one line, one to three lines kind of thing. It's not a huge amount that it's doing. So we can use a smaller model that's faster, more energy efficient, and gives you the responses back quicker. Um, for those kind of invocations and, and and all along the way it's models upon models you know so we're always trying to look at the right size model what's the minimum amount of um, resource and energy consumption we can use to solve this problem as we go you know and it's from a cost perspective as well from our side don't get you know it's not entirely altruistic but um but but it is definitely um, a conversation that's had and no product can ship at github without like those kind of review processes around that sort of thing. That's how we, 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 so it's good. You said it's good that people care about this. It is good that people care about this, but we also have to bake it into our shipping processes to make sure you are not allowed to ship a product unless you care about this. Like that, that's, so it's enforcement as well as like encouragement, just like with accessibility, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in closing, what are you looking forward to in in twenty twenty four? Or do you have some like spitball looking into the glass ball, whatever? What do you think yeah. is, is going to throw up this year in open source, but then on GitHub in general? Well, so one of the things I'm actually really interested. In, this is like super like nerdy niche like level stuff. I'm really interested to see um, where Japan. Pan and Indonesia end up in the community uh, sizes next year. Um, Indonesia in particular, because we saw such massive growth from both of them. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where they land in the table. I think we might um, also Brazil. I'm thinking we might see a change in, t- in terms of like the, the economies that are at the top of the open source kind of uh, ecosystem. So that'll be interesting. Um, we're seeing massive changes in, in, um, you know, obviously generative AI, but, um, you know, we're still, we're still at the early days. Like we're still at the equivalent of CLIs, you know, rather than kind of different UI. So it's going to be interesting to see what this next generation of tooling brings. And then obviously, you know, Apple just recently shipped their vision OS thing. Personally don't get it. Like I don't understand why, 
but um, I'm interested to see if that ends up being a thing. Like I own an Oculus, I own all of these things. I've not bought the dev kit yet, but I'll, you know, I, I will play with one. Like those things are fascinating from a purely nerdy point of view, but I, I wouldn't have any predictions on that because I, I don't quite don't quite see it yet. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different ideas happening in technology right now. Yeah. It almost feels like when just before the iPhone came out, there was all these explorations of how we can use and consume technology in different ways and what's the modality that's going to stick. So I think we're, we're, we're at that point again now. And we've seen how Copilot helps us as software developers. Like we, we were kind of spoiled. Usually new tools and technologies come to us last but it just so happened that like with Copilot kind of leading the way that the AI help within programming kind of came out early. We're now seeing that land with, with regular people, you know, and you see things like AI summarizations of meetings and like, you know, I, I hear my teachers at my kid's school talking about using AI to help them write school reports and things. And this is definitely, it's interesting. It's fascinating to see how it's going to affect the knowledge worker economy. Um, but my son is, my son's studying computer science at university right now, my eldest son. And yeah, I, I was studying university in like 94 to 97. So, you know, when I went to the computer lab, Mosaic was available, you know, like the, the internet was just starting really, it was just kind of kicking off. He's coming into, edu- you know, he's coming into his career as this AI wave kicks off and really kind of access to AI is a lot easier and a lot more consumable to the average developer. You don't need to be a PhD data scientist anymore. Like it's a lot more accessible. It's fascinating to see how that's going to impact his career. And, um, but it's also seeing the amount of excitement that that generation have in this space and that they, um, the opportunities that they see. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm positive, but it's, it's very exciting times. Well, thanks so much, Martin. This was a great conversation. Thanks for all the incredible information you shared and all the stories and stuff. It was it was great to just listen to everything. Um, I mean, all I can say is all of the best for, for 2024, for you, for GitHub, uh, for open source in general. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you'd want to close out with. No, I mean, if you want to get a hold of me, it's just Martin Woodward on GitHub and then that'll take you to my socials and things. But um, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to see where we go as well. And and just thanks for being part of the community as always and keep giving us the feedback to, to help make GitHub better. You know, one, one PR at a time, that's all we can do. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all the things open.